Right, we're still going uh, through uh, this series um, that we have began. Um, I'm not sure about uh, well, several weeks ago. Um, we are coming to the end. I don't believe that this will be the last message, but most likely the second last. Um, uh, what I would like to do, what I have in mind, is to review, just to recap everything that uh, I spoke, summarize it, and present it all to you in one message. Um, but just as a way of review, um, our government has placed mandates upon us that to obey them is simply to defy God's commands. It's just as simple as that. Uh, we have been pushed um, to a fork in the road, a T intersection, if you like, where Paul and John, the apostles, have been pushed into where they said in Acts 4.19, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Because to examine our salvation, to encourage the faint-hearted, to love, to be loved, to shepherd the flock, to submit to the leaders and all the other commands that are given in the scripture, there is no way that we could do them properly, wholeheartedly, unless we assemble in person. To, to fulfill our Christian duties are to assemble. To not assemble is not to obey God's commands. In fact, as we looked at last week, we are not just to assemble in fragments. We are to assemble together. Why? Because together we are the bride of Christ. Together we are the body of Christ, the family of God, the flock of God. And some may critique us and say, ah, oh, but you're preaching law to us. You've been Legalistic. We're, we're not under the law. We are under the grace. We're under grace. Jesus did not die to take away the law. Jesus died to take away the condemnation of the law, the penalty of the law. But on the other hand, Jesus died in order to establish the law. How? By writing his law in our hearts. It is not an option to obey God's commands. We've got to do it. God never said, hey guys, it's kind of up to you whether you want to obey my commands. You know, when you feel like it or when you uh, feel good about yourself or if it's not going to cost you much, well, you obey my commands. Otherwise, just feel free not to obey my commands. Christians have duties to fulfill. And what the new covenant did, brothers, is basically altered the reason, the very purpose why we obey God's commands. The new covenant, when God wrote his laws in our minds and in our hearts, it means that we now fulfill our Christian duties out of gratitude to God. We who know Christ strive to bloodshed for greater joy in Christ. We battle and wrestle for deeper intimacy with our Savior. 
for greater knowledge of this Son of God who gave up Himself for us. And we know we can get to this end when we walk in the path of obedience. When we're faithful in keeping His commands. No one is coerced to do this. No one is externally pressured to follow Christ. To follow Christ is an internal heart conviction that is brought about by the new covenant. That's what we spoke about last week. Now, two more objections that I do want to address this week. One, one objection. Are we unloving to assemble as a church in person in the midst of a pandemic? Are we unloving? The second objection. What about a, a family member, a spouse who's very afraid and tells me not to assemble? What should I do? The only way to respond to these objections is uh, when we have a proper understanding of the Lordship of Christ. And to this end, I do want to ask you to turn to Matthew 10 verses 34 to 39. So we can have a good grasp of the Lordship of Christ. We must understand something that is fundamentally important, that when we are saved, brothers and sisters, we are saved by the blood that was shed at Calvary. Full stop. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God is by grace and by grace alone. In Christ alone, it is not our good deeds that would save us. Even our own faith can never satisfy the demands that God put upon us. It is the blood of our great Savior that accomplished redemption for us. So let's, while we're reading this, it is not that Jesus is taking us to the law as though that it is by our good works that we are saved. But the faith that leads us to Christ what faith is, in a nutshell, is to trust in Christ for our salvation. This same genuine faith is the same faith that leads us to accept the Lordship of Christ. And this passage here, Matthew 10, 34-39, is one of the best passages that explains the depth of this Lordship. So I want to go through it uh, earlier on at the start of the message. And I believe as we begin to understand the Lordship of Christ, it will uh, overthrow those objections that I just presented earlier to you. I want to take this opportunity to help us understand what the Scripture means about the Lordship of Christ. Now let's read from verses 34 to 39. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves 
father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What we have here is the framework that our relationship with Jesus is spelled out and established. This is our devotion to Christ and it is painted in the canvas of our heart with the brush of the Holy Spirit. To summarize this passage in one sentence is to say that Jesus alone is to live for. You see, when we say Jesus alone saves us, what we're saying, we're speaking of the exclusivity of Christ in our justification. And when we say Jesus alone is to live for, we are speaking of the exclusivity of Christ in our sanctification. The Lordship of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is written in the fabric of our hearts. The miracle of the new birth that let us delay hold of Christ for salvation is the very same miracle that when our eyes were once darkened because of our sin, are now opened to our desire to live for Christ in every aspect of our lives. We are now convinced that our restless souls will only find rest in Him. And that we are willing to let go of anything for His sake. These texts before us are the vows of our betrothal to our Savior. And even though we do fail, we stumble along the way. Absolutely. And we don't have a great track record in keeping these vows, but these are our commitment to Christ. This is the direction of our lives, the very benchmark to measure our holiness against. When we walk consistently to what Jesus says here, we are praising God that He's working through us. And we're walking in the opposite direction of what it says here. And we come to Christ with tears of repentance. Let's, let's have a look quickly and we'll go through it verse by verse and then we're going to address these objections afterwards. Starting from verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What Jesus is saying here is that I didn't come for you and I to have a cozy life. Jesus is saying I didn't come so that I would help you to advance your goals and for you to fulfill your dreams. No. Jesus came and Jesus drew a line on the sand. He says I did not come to bring peace. 
but a sword. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. And for Jesus to say, I did not come to bring peace, what he means then that he came to bring wars. There are wars to be won. There are tears to be shed, losses to suffer, battles to fight. Now, obviously, Jesus did not intend to say that we are to go and slaughter and kill unbelievers. Definitely, that's not what the text is saying. But there are emotional losses, financial losses, yes, even relational losses. Let's continue to read and you see that. Verse 35, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And just to make sure that he's not just only specifically targeting these kind of relationships, in verse 36 he says, A man's enemies will be the members of his household. What does this mean? It means the closest people to you will turn on you because of your commitment to Christ. You will have your spouse will say to you, I don't want you to obey Jesus' commands. It will bring great risk to our family. Your children will say to you, your following of Jesus brings us shame. Your parents will disown you because of your devotion to Christ. And how does Jesus want us to respond to all of these things? Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Brothers, Jesus does not mince words, does he? He doesn't sugarcoat his messages. He doesn't water it down. He, he front loads his messages time and time again with absolute clarity, right? We are to love him more than to love even the closest people to us. And how much more? 10% more? 50? 70% and that and anything beyond that is extra? You know, a bonus? Luke 14, 26. Jesus tells us how much we've got to love him more. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. How much more? 100% more. Jesus is, is to be the all-consuming passion 
desire that is burning in our chests. That is the new covenant. That is what God inscribed, engraved in, in the hearts of his new, of his people. To hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life means that you must be willing to find Jesus to be infinitely pleasurable. That your affection towards the closest people to you, if it's on one side and your affection towards Jesus on the other side, that your affection to, to your family members would look like hatred in comparison to your affection towards Jesus Christ. That is what is written again, brothers and sisters, in the very fabric of our new hearts. And this affection will impact all the decisions that we're going to be making in our lives. How do we know that? Let's continue reading verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Cross. What does that speak of? It speaks of shame, of rejection. It speaks of being ridiculed to suffer even to the point of death. So to carry your cross would mean that our union with our Savior compels us to be willing to embrace Christ, to be so near to us that we are willing to suffer the worst rejection. Enduring the severest persecution for his sake. That we are willing to be identified with him. Longing to enjoy such intimacy with Christ. That we are willing to be mocked, ridiculed, rejected for him. That if no one else follows after Jesus Christ, we would say by God's strength, we will follow. What does it mean to follow after Christ? He says, follow after me. What does it mean to follow after Christ? It means we go wherever he takes us. Because we desire vertical satisfaction in him. It demands that we abandon our horizontal pursuit of earthly pleasures as the idol in the temple of our heart. That since that we do want to experience his supernatural joy, his abundant delight and satisfaction in our lives, that we are willing to pay any price travel any distance, spend any time in our pursuit to be delighted in our Lord. It means that our hobbies, our holidays are never ever to compete with against our satisfaction in the one who shed his blood and died for us. No, even our hobbies and holidays are to be subservient to Christ. Even our resting time, 
our finance, whatever it is that we possess would energize us to propel us further and deeper in our affection for Jesus. To follow Christ means that if position, possession, or earthly passion, friends, fame, fun, health, wealth, prosperity, if they would ever claim such a small part of our heart, even an inch of our heart, that we don't negotiate those vows. We don't lower down the bar of our commitment to Jesus. We don't bargain with him. We don't turn a blind eye. No. That we come back to Christ Jesus in tears of repentance, fixing our eyes on the blood that forgave us, relying on nothing else but his strength to overcome those idols in, in our heart. Why? So that Jesus and Jesus alone and no one else but Jesus to reign as the supreme idol in the temple of our hearts. Then Jesus finishes with an uppercut in verse 39. He says, He who has found his life will lose it. If this is not written, if this law is not written in your heart, friend, you're lost. You are lost. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Brothers, the call to live as a Christian is a call to die. It's a call to die to self. The day we professed our trust in Jesus Christ is the very day that the cross of Jesus pierced right through our hearts and he has claimed us totally to be owned by him. George Muller said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Muller, his opinions, preferences, tastes and will. Die to the world, its approval or censure. Die to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved unto God. Jonathan Edwards, quote, Resolve, never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own but entirely and altogether God's. Brothers, Jesus is not here preaching sinless perfection, as though that believers do not sin. Let's not be mistaken. What he's preaching here is consecration, total dedication to his lordship. A Christian is not a man without faults, brothers and sisters. No, a Christian is a man who recognizes that we are no longer our own, but Christ's, completely and totally given to Christ. 
the law that is written in our hearts is that we desire to crucify the flesh, to modify the deeds of the body, to fight daily any passion that challenges our devotion to Jesus. We may never attain a perfection of this, of our obedience to this passage. But this is our reference point. And we love that. We love the fact that this is our reference point and we work hard towards it. Well, with that being said, and since this is now burning in our hearts and fresh in our minds, let's respond to these objections. I want to start with the first one, which is, what if my spouse tells me, hey, you, don't go to church, don't assemble. It's too much trouble, too much risk. What do we do? How do we say? How do we respond to this? Well, let me qualify what I'm about to say by saying, listen, okay, we do understand that the scripture puts a mandate upon us that husbands to love their wives as Christ loves this church, that wives are to submit to their husbands. Absolutely. We say amen to that. And, and children are to, to obey their parents in the Lord. Absolutely. But what happens when our loved ones, what they want is the exact opposite of what Christ wants. Who do we please at the end of the day? Let us be open and frank about this. Now let me answer this question by asking several questions. When a spouse says to you, don't, and Christ says, do. <clears throat> Who loves you to the point of death? Your wife? Who sacrificially loves us that he was willing to bear the full wrath of God to redeem us from hellfire? Our husbands? Who made himself available to us, brothers and sisters, in order to be our bread of life, the fountain of living waters, in order to nourish our souls, to satisfy our hearts? And who is it that is seated at the right hand of the Father and at his name, as the scripture says, Every knee will bow of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Our spouses? Who is your consuming pleasure? Who is your Lord? Oh no, pastor, but I, but I don't feel right. Is your feeling your Lord? Did God write in your heart to follow your feeling or to follow Christ? Yeah, I get it. Jesus is my Lord. I get that. I understand this. But I just don't feel right to obey him this way. 
Are we to follow Jesus according to our feelings or according to his commands? But you, you just don't get it, Pastor. I mean, I'm really scared. You have no idea what would happen to me if I obey Jesus' commands. I totally sympathize with you. I do. If you're in this situation, you know what? Our hearts go out to you. Absolutely. But in no way do we justify our disobedience to Jesus just because we will suffer for it. We don't do that any more than Peter justifying his denial of Jesus just because it would have led to his death. Let us be faithful like Daniel was when he prayed, even though it costed him that he was thrown in a lion's den. Let us be faithful like Joseph was, even though it costed him that he was thrown into prison. Second objection. And that's the one that I do want to spend the rest, the remainder of, of this message addressing. Aren't we unloving to assemble as a church in person in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, we hear this in the news every day, right? You've got to wear a mask. You've got to make sure that you don't socialize. Uh, do the right thing. Staying apart keeps us together. Whatever that means. I mean, I still don't understand what it means. Staying apart keeps us together. Don't assemble. If you assemble, you're not loving. How come? Ah, uh, you may potentially infect grandma. You know, you'll put others at risk. Well, does that mean truckies are unloving since they've potentially put other drivers at risk of having accidents? Let's get them off the road, right? And, and what about competitive sport players? Are they unloving because they may potentially put other players at risk of getting injured? Let's, let's not do that. In fact, let's not sell food because food may potentially lead to food poisoning. So anybody that sells food you're unloving. And that's crazy, right? Now, let me answer this question in three ways. There are three reasons why we are not unloving. We are loving when we assemble. Number one, Jesus is the Lord of our hearts. He's the one that gets to define what is right, what the right thing from the wrong thing is. He's the one that dictates how to be loving and how to show love. He, Jesus Christ, stands as the gateway between a Christian and how that Christian relates to everyone else. And how does Jesus define how to be loving? Let's, let's have a look at Romans 13. We looked at this couple of weeks ago, let's have a look again. How does Jesus want us to be loving to our fellow citizens, our neighbors, 
verse 8. And the Bible says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Great. For he who loves his neighbor has what? Fulfilled the law. Do you want to show your love to your neighbors? Do you want to express your love to other people? Then what do you do? Fulfill the law. The law is the expression of love. Does the government want to punish evildoers? You know, those that are unloving to their neighbors. Then let them punish those who do not fulfill the law. Now, what law? What law? Read the text. Verse 9. It's right before our eyes. Read what the text says. For this you shall not commit adultery. What law is this? It's the Ten Commandments, the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, which is you shall honor your parents, you shall not bear false witness. It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In no way does the scripture say to be loving is to make sure that you don't potentially infect other people with a virus. It's absurd to actually even think that way. It is as absurd as saying uh, you've got to be loving by making sure you prevent people from drowning in a tsunami or preventing an earthquake. It's called an act of God. God is in control over this, not us. Do you want to be loving to your fellow citizens? Fulfill the law. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't go and intentionally murder other people. No matter how, how old they are or how young they are, abortion, committing abortion is unloving. Right? Don't steal other people's stuff. This is the fulfillment of the law. This is how to be loving to your fellow citizens. But wait, there is more. Because our Lord Jesus did teach us how to be loving to our, to our believers, to the bride of Christ, to the members of the body of Christ. You know, they say to us, do the right thing, do the right thing. Well, you know what? We want to do the right thing. So what do we do? We go back to Christ and say, Christ, tell us, how do we do the right thing? How do we be loving to your people? First Peter 4, 8. Do you want to be loving to the bride of Christ? First Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Oh, great, keep fervent in your love because love covers a multitude of sin. Great, we want to be fervent in our love. But Lord Jesus, how do we show this fervent love to one another? What does he say? Look, read the text. Verse 9, what does he say? How do we show love, this fervent love to one another? Be hospitable to one another. 
without complaint. Be hospitable. You want to show love to your brothers and sisters? Be hospitable. Again, Ephesians 4.2, you don't have to bring it. I'll just read it to you because otherwise it will take too long. With all humility, Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Great. We're going to show tolerance for one another in love. How? How do we do that? How do we show tolerance to one another in love, for one another in love? By not assembling. By social distancing. No. Verse 3. Immediately after it, it says, Be diligent to, pres to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. What do you think Paul had in mind when he wanted us to persevere in order to preserve the unity? By being one, one body. And it demands that we would serve one another, edifying one another. This is what God says about being loving. So to say staying apart keeps us together is completely unbiblical. It tears apart the body of Christ. According to Jesus, it is unloving to do so. That's the first reason why we are loving when we assemble. Jesus is Lord. He dictates what it means and how to show our love to others. Second reason. Because we're not legalistic. We're not legalistic. You know, to say we are unloving because we're not social distancing or not wearing masks, that's be legalistic. What is legalism? Legalism is in the name of adhering to the law of God. One would add layers upon layers of silly rules over and above the word of God. And then he brings these rules and then he imposes these rules upon everyone else so that everyone would have to comply with his silly rules in the name of loving. You know, this is no different from the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. What did they do? They imposed so much rituals to build a fence around the word of God. And then what did they do? They fenced and they refenced the law of God so much that the concept of the true love to God and to one another have been buried, snowed under and overshadowed by their rituals and their external system that they put in place. You know, you want to wear a mask. Or perhaps you don't want to shake someone's hand because you believe that this is your way to express your love. Great. Go ahead. Do that. Absolutely. No one ought to condemn you for doing that. 100%. But what if another brother believes that wearing a mask is unloving to others? What if he believes that wearing a mask is detrimental to his health and, and he won't be able to love his family by providing for them if he wears a mask and then he gets sick? 
Why do you want to impose on him to be loving your way? And in a lot of being obliged to obey your silly rules, he now feels that he's hating his family. That's not good. That's not good at all. You know, they say assembling is unloving because people may potentially be at risk. What about the faint-hearted brother who needs to assemble because he's at the verge of committing a suicide? Should we be unloving to him and tell him stay at home? What about a, a mother who's desperate for fellowship so she can learn how to deal with her always angry husband? Should we shut the doors in her face and be unloving to her? And, and what about the countless heartbroken men, women, and children who need to find hope in a resurrected Christ through the touch of a brother, a hug of a sister, a real human interaction within the assembly of the church? Because they know, they know they won't find this hope anywhere else. But in assembly, why should we be unloving to them? Or better put, why do you have to be legalistic trying to bind your man-made rules to our conscience? And in so doing, and while you're forcing us to love grandma your way, in the process you lead us to hate everyone else. Why do you do that? Who, who do you think you are? The Pope? Brothers, sisters, this concept of, you know, you, we're being unloving because we assemble is no more than the, 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 than the legalistic Pharisees who were ruthless, completely dried up of compassion. So much that when Jesus came and attempted to heal someone on the Sabbath, because of their silly rules, they wanted Jesus for dead. You want to know what is unloving? When four infants last week were denied a heart surgery because of the lockdown and they were left for dead. Try to convince their parents that you're being, unlo- being loving, that you're doing the right thing. You want to know what is unloving? To open up the brothels and yet make it illegal for families to mourn over their deceased loved ones. Loving? Loving what? And what about the thousands of suicides? The millions of businesses that went bankrupt, families that went broke, parents that can't even feed their children because of some person or a group of people that are thirsty for control. Yet, those politicians, the same politicians, while their hands are dipped in the blood of thousands of innocents, what do they do? They lift up their hands and while their fingers are still dripping with the blood, they point it at us and they blame us that we're being unloving because we're assembling. May God have mercy upon their souls. They have a lot to answer for. 
That's the second reason. We're not legalistic. The third reason, and the final reason, we need to understand that Christians live in two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. We, we, we do live in an earthly kingdom. We do that. We live in an earthly kingdom and we have a loving obligation towards our neighbors. Absolutely. But let us not forget, brothers and sisters, Colossians 1.13 says, For he, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let us not forget that we belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Our citizenship is heavenly. We belong first and foremost to the eternal kingdom of God. Secondary, we live in the kingdom of man. But first and foremost, those of us who are born again belong to the kingdom of God. Such that if the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man cross path each other, we have an obligation to submit and obey the kingdom of God's rules over and above the kingdom of man. And in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, we have a position and a role to fulfill. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is our position. And what is our role? Same verse. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our job description in the kingdom of God, beloved, is that we are ambassadors for that king. We're all frontline essential workers trying to fight this real pandemic. Not COVID-19, but that virus called sin. It is deadly. It is contagious. And we all stand at the gates of, of hell with our posts pointing to Christ, pleading with these infected sinners to turn away from hell, to flee, flee from the wrath to come, flee into the arms of Christ, who is our only immunity, to run to Christ for eternal redemption. As Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we beg unbelievers, we plead with unbelievers to come to God through Christ. Brothers, how can this be unloving? To snatch sinners from eternal hellfire and to lead them to Christ is the most loving thing to do. They say, okay, well, 
You don't do that in, in Sundays. Well, we do. We, we call people to repent on Sundays. Um, but, but they say, well, you know, you don't have to assemble to do that. Brothers, sisters, let me tell you something very important. What we have at hand is a spiritual warfare, right? And this spiritual warfare is exhausting. It is draining physically, emotionally, mentally. To go on to preach and get rejected time and time again is draining. To have the courage to stand over your fear and go and share the gospel with the dying world who hate Christ is exhausting. And the church, brothers and sisters, is our base. God ordained for our church to be the base where we recharge and reload our ammunitions. God ordained for the church assembly to be our home where we find rest so we could continue to serve. The church, brothers and sisters, is the hospital that Christ has granted his people. So through his body, Christ himself begins to administer healing to our fatigued soul. And when we gather together, and when we look upon Christ, our healer, and as he looks upon us with his beautiful smile and we see it by faith, and he finds us together praising his name, singing and making melody in our hearts to him, and we hear his voice through Psalms reading, through the preaching of his word, and in so doing, our king is pleased. And brothers, his pleasure is what gives us strength and stamina and vitality to, to endure all kind of trials. So to not assemble would be unloving. But to assemble is loving to our Savior, to Grandma, and to everyone else who needs to hear the gospel. Why is it loving? To sum it up, Jesus is our Lord. He dictates what is loving. And we're not embarrassed of that. We're not ashamed of that. Two, we're not being legalistic. People don't dictate to us how to be loving. Number three, we belong to, all, to another kingdom. We don't just belong to this kingdom of Melbourne. We belong to the kingdom of God. There are, of course, more objections that we will be addressing, Lord willing, next time. You know, bad reproach. You know, are we not bringing bad reproach? People are going to look us, at us as evildoers. Isn't that bad? Shouldn't we be, um, uh, good, we be good witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we being good witnesses if people are going to look at us and see that we are evil people according to what they think is evil? How do we reconcile that in our minds? And what about uh, how much should we do this? How much should we assemble? Should we assemble once a week, twice a week, 10 times a week? 
How much? How much is too much? How little is too little? We'll talk about that next week. But as we come to the end, I do want to be obedient to God's command and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers among us. Let us not be so gullible and naive to actually think that everyone in this in this room is a born-again believer. Listen, there is always Judas among the 12, right? There's always someone who needs to be saved. And I want to say to you, friend, you're headed for hell. God gave you commandments to obey. Open your eyes. You have not obeyed even the, the smallest and the slightest command. You have not obeyed it whether in action or thought or desire. None of the commandments of God were you able to keep. And our God is, is a perfect God, perfect in His righteousness. He demands perfect obedience. He's also perfect in His justice. And His justice demands your damnation. What are you going to do on that day when you stand before a holy God to give an account to every evil deed you have committed? When you're headed for hell, where the eternal wrath of God will be upon you day and night. The smoke of your torment will rise and it will give glory to God because His justice has been executed in your damnation. It is a terrible thing. It is a very terrifying thing, friend, to ever fall in the hands of an angry God. How are you going to wiggle out of His righteous hand? You're going to hate your sin? Let me say it one more time. Loving your sin will lead you to hell. Hating your sin will never lead you to heaven. Not even one single good deed or all the good deeds that you could ever do will ever lead you to heaven. It is Christ and Christ alone. God who is perfect in His justice, He's also perfect in His mercy, perfect in His compassion. Perfect in his love and mercy. And he sent his son 2,000 years ago. He's the one, Jesus Christ, that offered perfect obedience to God. Jesus' obedience to God's commands pleased the Father. And he's offering this perfect obedience to anyone that will come to him. Why? So that when you stand before a holy and perfect, righteous God, rather than you come with your righteousness, which is utterly corrupt, you come and you present the righteousness of Jesus to the Father. And at the same time, Jesus not only offered perfect obedience, but he went to the cross. He died the death that you and I cannot die, cannot do. He died that death where he bore the full wrath of a holy God. That's something that you cannot bear. Friend, even if you go to eternity, for eternity to come in order to bear the wrath of God, you will never be able to. That's why eternity is infinite. It's eternal time. That's what we call eternity. You cannot bear the full wrath of God. Yet Jesus bore it all. In a short, compressed few hours 
on Friday when he died and gave up himself. He bore that wrath on behalf of everyone that will come to him. I plead with you, come to Christ. Come to him. Abide in him. Flee to Christ so that you would find forgiveness for your sins. So that you would have eternal life. Come to him. God does not promise that you can go back home alive. He never guarantees that. You can get in the car, thank the Lord that you were safe here in this room and then get in the car and go home and have a crash and die this moment before you arrive home. God never guarantees it. But let me tell you what God guarantees, that if you come to Christ this moment, he will by no means cast you out. He will accept you. He will bear your sin on the cross. He will grant you perfect obedience, his perfect obedience. And you will stand blameless before the holy God because of what Jesus has done on the cross on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that if anyone among us who has not come all the way to know you, Father, please speak life into these dead souls. Put in their hearts to run to Christ for salvation. Father, we plead with you. We have family members who are dead in sin, friends who are dead in sin. Father, have mercy upon them. Cause them to know Christ. Cause them to trust in him. Cause them to follow Christ genuinely. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.